Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. It is astounding to think about. It is hard to comprehend. It is sometimes hard to believe. And yet here we are at the start of a new year, worshiping and praising our Lord God Almighty. And let us strive this year to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, to be in Christ and to show how we are new creations in Jesus Christ. Well, the last few weeks we have been speaking about setting our minds on things that are above and not of this earth. We have talked about putting off or putting to death those sins which defile ourselves as God's creation, those sins of immorality, those sins of lust, those sins of envy and covetousness. And they are corrosive and destructive, these sins, the sins of anger, the sins of malice and slander, corrosive and destructive to the fellowship known as the Church of Jesus Christ and to our relationship with other people. The final instruction in Paul's section on putting on the new self said in verse 17 of uh, chapter 3, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And this has been Paul's instruction throughout this book. In chapter 2, verse 6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, root it and build up in him, and establish in the faith. Verse 9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. And in verse 19, Christ, the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. Chapter 3, verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. In verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In verse 9, you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Christ is all and in all. Well, and in verses 12 through 17, Paul tells us generally how we are to behave within the church and with our Christian brethren. And he says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Father, Your word tells us that we are in Christ, that we are new creations in the image of Christ. We pray that your word today would penetrate into our hearts, 
that we might know what that means in our relationships with those around us, that we might act like Christ with those around us, that we might build each other up, that we might love each other, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is important that we look at the context of Scripture when seeing how the Lord wants us to apply it in our lives today. We're going to look at these rules for Christian households. That's what the the heading in my Bible says, rules for Christian households. We're going to look at it first through the lens of first century Roman life, and then we're going to look at it through the lens of our life today in the 21st century and see how it applies. Now, I have been told that this topic and I'm going to just read the first sentence, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord, that this is a controversial topic. In fact, a good friend of mine this week told me that this particular verse is known in the pastor business as a retirement verse (laughs) preached just before the congregation asked him to leave. But like all of Scripture, God's Word is perfect provides all that we need to live Christian lives, so we will approach it with that heart and that intention. And as we ponder these rules for family life, we must look at them as instructions given to Christians who were new creations in Christ. They are instructions for living Christianly in the place where, for better or worse, one is truly oneself, the home. You know, it's often said we only abuse the ones we love. You know, we treat the people in our home way worse than we treat people elsewhere. So these are instructions for living in this place where we tend to be less careful about how we treat other people around us. If a person is going to be afflicted with the inability to get along, it's going to work its way out within his marriage, and it's going to work its way out in his relationship with his children, or her, either way. And these rules or instructions focus on one, how one is to be truly oneself in the Lord as a member of the new humanity, and how to set the other members of one's family free to be truly themselves in the richness of Christ. So how do we act to be ourselves in Christ, and how do we act to equip those people in our households to be in Christ as well? C.S. Lewis said, if the home is to be a means of grace, it must be a place of rules. The alternative to rule is not freedom, but the unconstitutional and often unconscious tyranny of the most selfish member. So now it's significant that the first human institution established by God was that of marriage in Genesis 2. There are a number of reasons for this, and I'm just going to hit on some of the points. Uh, The long period of human infancy and helplessness requires careful protection and training of the children by their parents. I mean, think about animals. They pretty quickly can be up and running and hunting and doing whatever else. But a human child takes many, many years to be able to get to the point where he or she is able to care for themselves. And so this human institution instituted by God was for the protection of this 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 human being, this young human being created in his image. God wanted to protect it. In his wisdom, God ordained that the home, built on the mutual love and respect of husband and wife, should be the basic human unit of authority and instruction. The home is that basic unit. So from the authority of the father in the home, which we're going to talk about, there would develop, as populations grew, still more elaborate governmental systems and structures. 
and from the fundamental activity of the parents in teaching and training their children, schools and other educational institutions would eventually be established. It took many years, but, but that's how all of these things get their footing, is from God's creation of this institution of the family. And the church also, which has the function of teaching and the function of authority in the spiritual realm, is likewise patterned in many respects after the home, with a person as a head and everyone else submitting. But what of the equality of men and women? Well, something to ponder from the book of Genesis. Although it would seem likely that God would form Eve's body in the same way that he did even, directly out of the earth itself, because the name Adam means man from the red dirt. Basically, God took the dirt and created Adam. He didn't do it that way. He built her out of the body of Adam. They were truly one flesh. The word rib, which is in a lot of Bibles, you know, God took the rib, is actually a poor translation. Most of the time, it simply means the side, took it from Adam's side. And the thought, evidently, is to stress that woman was made neither from Adam's head, which would suggest superiority, or Adam's feet, which would suggest inferiority, but from his side, indicating equality and companionship. Eve was made from Adam's side to work alongside him in carrying out the divine commission to fill the earth and subdue it. They were to do this together. All right? There wasn't any hierarchy. They were to do this together. And she not only had the same flesh as Adam, but she also had an eternal spirit just like Adam did. But significantly, the spirit or the image of God was directly from God himself and not mediated through Adam as was her physical body. And it's the same for every person that's born these days. And this we know from Genesis 1.27. This is how it took place. And so in the context of that, the integrity and permanence of the home, the individual home, is of such great importance to God's economy and God's creation that God made it plain from the beginning that marriage was intended to be permanent unto death. And likewise, the equality of Eve with Adam in the eyes of God was made clear from the moment of her creation. That was absolutely clear. And yet, the fall, which took place at some point after that, gave rise to the need for God to impose certain rules on human beings. Because of sin, rules and structures were needed in order to protect people from other people and from themselves. Look what happened in the garden. After sin, there was blame shifting, there was throwing their life partner under the bus, well, it wasn't me, it was her, whatever, okay? And those are the things that happen without any sorts of rules or authority. And so God created government to protect mankind from unrestrained evil, which would occur if there were no restraints on behavior. Total freedom would result in total anarchy and chaos. And so God tells his people in both the Old Testament and the New that they are to obey the authorities that have been placed above them since he put them there. Man didn't put them there. And we see this working out today, and it's very difficult to grasp this concept in the light of what's happening in our country. But the reality is God says clearly in his word that every authority is placed over us by God. We may not understand why. We may not agree with that person, but God did it there, did put that person there, does put authorities over us, and we are supposed to submit to the authority which has been placed over us. Not just in the context of marriage necessarily, but in all different contexts. But of course, since man has fallen, those authorities do not always act in a godly or even in a fair way. 
History is full of examples of this one. On a smaller scale, marriages are full of examples like this. Families have been crippled by people exercising authority in an ungodly and cruel way. Paul's intention in this section is to let the Colossians and us know the proper relationships within the household of Christian believers. And so if we step back to Genesis again, one of the great problems of the fall was that it led to separations. The first big separation, obviously man was separated from God. Okay. Well, in his separation from God, man then lacks absolute moral ethical standards to regulate his behavior. When you separate yourself from God, you end up questioning God. So what happened in the garden? Did God really say? And Eve didn't repeat back God's words. She paraphrased his words and said something different than what God had said. And so this separation, because her sin occurred not when she ate the apple. Her sin occurred when she listened to Satan against God. And so once she did that, she was separated from this moral absolute of God's command. And we see this working out today in the moral relativism and situational ethics which exist around us. Now, man was not only separated from God by his sin, he was separated from other, and I say he, he, she, were separated from other men as well. Man feels a sense of alienation and loneliness, and many times man feels alone and separated and isolated just like Adam and Eve, they were naked and ashamed because they weren't one person anymore. They weren't one body anymore. They were separate. They were looking at their differences. And that was one of the, 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 the consequences of the sin. Man feels a sense of anonymity or emptiness apart from God. Now, I'm talking not about believers. I'm talking about unbelievers now. But man feels trapped in an impersonal universe being considered, in the words of evolutionists, a chance configuration of atoms in the slipstream of meaningless chance history. Okay? But that's how man who doesn't place their faith in Jesus Christ and their Savior f- finds themselves. That there is no purpose. There is alienation. They are isolated. They are alone. And James 4 Verses 1 and 2 speak of the effect of this separation between man and God and man and man. And he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire, do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. These conflicts are the result of man's selfishness and alienation from others. Because man has no moral standards and faces emptiness and loneliness, he sees others as a threat to his pursuit of happiness, and the consequences that James writes about take place. And again, these are unbelievers we're talking about now. This is the world in which unbelievers live. It affects all of their relationships. And remember, this is the world in which we once lived too before we became new creations in Jesus Christ. And Paul told us we need to put off these things. And he called them different names back then, wrath and slander, malice, whatever. But this is what Paul is talking about putting, putting off. And the, this world that non-believers live in, these things affect all of their relationships, if they even have relationships. How many people go through life without any true relationships, any true friendships with people where they let people in to what's going on in their lives? But it particularly affects the marriage relationship, which is the single most important social institution that exists, and which is also the single most important institution in God's economy. 
So Paul, in verses 18 and 19, speaks of the marriage relationship. And he says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Well, when a person becomes a Christian, Paul shows us that several things happen. First, the Word of God contains absolute moral standards that is rooted in the nature of God. Okay, we all know this. We believe this, even if we sometimes struggle with it. So that takes care of the first separation from God, this lack of moral standards. The believer then also is no longer anonymous, but is a child of God. He gets his identity with God, and he's a fellow heir with Jesus Christ. And secondly, believers no longer suffer from alienation or loneliness since they are now beloved children of the Heavenly Father and part of the family of believers. So that's what happens to us there. And so Paul talks about, in this context, and I've given you all this context to know when we look at these, these, these two verses, you don't look at them in isolation. You look at them in the light of what Paul has been saying. And he talks now about two basic principles, authority and submission. These principles are not unique to Christianity. It has always been God's plan for homes to operate on this basis. And we're going to talk about the roots of those principles from back in Genesis. But at that time, when Paul is preaching this, and when Jesus Christ came and made us new creations, Christianity introduced new elements into the house. First thing that was introduced into the house was the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, which brought a new power. It brought a new power into the house and into the people that are in the household. Christ is present in the family, and the, his spirit gives the power to make the family what it ought to be. And we've been talking about how the, the Christ in us enables us to do that. Secondly, so first, a new power in Jesus Christ. Secondly, Christianity introduced a new purpose into the home. What does uh, Paul say? Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So the purpose is doing everything in the name of Jesus Christ within your marriage, within your house. And finally, Christianity introduced a new pattern into the home. This pattern is seen in Ephesians, which really needs to be read in conjunction with Colossians when we are talking about the rules for Christian households. Both books were written at the same time by Paul in prison and have to be read in conjunction with each other with each other to flesh out these pretty terse commands. Wives, submit to your husbands. Uh, husbands, love your wives. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The new pattern is Christ. He is the model for us to follow as Christ loved the church. So in this passage where Paul provides brief instructions on Christian living in the home, he discusses the three relationships in ancient Rome that existed in the household. Husbands and wives, parents and children, and masters and slaves. Those were the three primary relationships in the home. He provides a word to each of those in this section. And it is to those words that we're now going to turn. Worth noting, though, is that one of the most striking characteristics of these instructions is that they are reciprocal. They go both ways. In commanding God-glorifying domestic relations, the rules do not stress the duty of wives at the expense of husbands or the privileges of husbands at the expense of wives. 
Children and parents are both commanded. Slaves and masters are both commanded. In the secular writings of that time, the duty of the first member in each group, husbands and wives, was stressed, and little or nothing was said about the second. In ancient times, when things went wrong in the family, all the blame was heaped on wives, children, and slaves. And the master of the house, the husband, was able to put people to death if he thought it was an appropriate response. God, who is a God of fairness and justice, makes sure that these household relationships are fair and equitable. And and finally, before we start on the specific instructions, I would acknowledge that in today's modern society, which is the contemporary non-Christian world, it claims to offer a better model for marriage and family life than that which Paul suggests here. But we've got to remember two things. One, God provides the only instructions that work in this world that he created. And secondly, Paul's instructions, unlike what you hear from the world, are all about in the Lord, fearing the Lord, in Christ. These timeless reminders of why we're supposed to do it show why the instructions apply today as much as they did back in ancient Rome. Despite what people would tell you, well, things have changed. Equality is more important now than then. But the rules are the same in Jesus' uh, economy and God's economy. And being in Christ results in the same thing today as it did 2,000 years ago. So, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. These scriptures find their parallel in Ephesians 5, 22 and 33. And so what I'd like to do is to read those because we, we need to read these both in order to make sense of what Paul's saying. So if you want to turn to Ephesians 5, uh, 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Well, that's a lot more words than Paul uses in Colossians. Interestingly, Colossians uses two sentences for husbands and wives. That used about ten. But he uses about four times that amount for masters and slaves because there's a different focus of those two books. But these instructions are, are critical for us to understand. And the, the, the difficult thing for most of us when we look at this is the word submit. Submit, that is a difficult word, and it's difficult for all of us. We live in a culture where man or woman, we submit to no one. We are all equal with no one in authority. If the one over us asks in a way that we think is unfair... We sue. 
We disobey. We file a grievance. There is no thought of sacrifice or obedience or what Paul and Christ talk about when we, were wrong, when we are wronged. To turn the other cheek, let the person who steals our coat also take our cloak. That's foreign to us. Because it doesn't really apply to this situation. You know, I've got rights. I can go to court. I can get things. Now, I'm not in any means suggesting that this scripture suggests for a minute that a wife should submit to abusive behavior of any kind because they should not. They cannot. And that's not what Paul is calling us to here at all. It's not his intention. It's not his instruction. His intention is to discuss God's plan for how a Christian marriage should work and what it should look like. Now, we know that men and women were created equally by God. In non-Christian circles back then, women were regarded as inferior beings. Greeks, Romans, and even some Jews considered women to be intrinsically inferior to men. A Jewish prayer at the time was, thank you, Lord, that I was not created a woman. Okay? Well, you know, it's funny, but it's not, because that was what that culture was all about. And so this was really changing that around. And in the Old Testament, though, you know, we hear often that God is a God that hates women, that it's patriarchal, whatever. But in the Old Testament, God provided women for the first time ever with marital rights and with property rights, things that were completely unheard of in the ancient world because women were regarded as nothing more than property. Now, we've talked already about the creation of women equal with men. Okay. In the New Testament, Jesus made some of his most startling revelations to women. Think, I am the resurrection of the life, which he made to Mary and Martha. I would have given you living water, he tells the woman at the well. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Again, the woman at the well. I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God, to Mary in the garden after the resurrection. It is inconceivable that Jesus would relegate women to an inferior role in marriage, and it is absolutely wrong to read this passage from Colossians in that way. That's not what it's about. And yet it is absolutely true that God set up systems of authority and submission throughout Scripture which apply to all Christians, not simply husbands and wives. And as we talked about before, this is the result of the fall and the need for structure in the primary relationships of man. There has to be structure. In a fallen world, pure democracy is not possible. It is not possible. Look now how the 50.1% tyrannizes the 49.9%. And if the, if the percentage was turned around the other way, the same thing would happen. Because there is no one righteous, no, not one. You know, our hearts are dark. And so God puts structure so that we would have order and not tyranny. The freedom of no structure would actually be chaos. So God, in Genesis 3.16, says to Eve, Your desire shall be against your husband, and he shall rule over you. Verse 16 forms the structure of the basic man-woman relationship in marriage. But when culture tries to smash this relationship, which it is now trying to do, it hurts the woman because it takes away her equality, it takes away her status and her value before God, and it destroys the other things that flow from that. Children's obedience, the crumbling of social institutions, they all flow from that. I cannot overstate the importance of the marriage relationship and its structure to society. And it is the relationship which is most under attack by Satan today, and this is why. 
because it is critical. And so looking at Paul's instruction, we see wives being told to submit to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Okay? Know what this command does not say. It does not say anything about the husband's authority. It does not say anything about his power, his leadership, his status, all of which, by the way, would have been understood in the Roman culture because those were all intrinsic to the Roman culture. It says to submit because it's the Lord's way of life. That's what the Lord wants us to do. This would have been a radical statement on Paul's part and provided an alternative to the way that status was seen in the ancient world. Note that it also would have liberated and protected slave wives that lived in that household who would have had less than no rights in that culture. So he provides rights to them as well. Now, I would emphasize again that when a husband's authority is advanced as the ground for the wife's so-called submission, that is not what Paul teaches here. In fact, this argument is more pagan-centered than, than Christ-like-centered. It said, because I have authority, you must submit. Biblical authority is not the right to rule. It is the responsibility to serve. Okay? And if we're supposed to be like Jesus, does Jesus bring down the hammer on the church? Make me some potlucks next week. You know? <laughs> Build me big churches. No, he does not do that. That's not the authority that he exercises. He is the head intending to lead us to holiness and joy through his loving leadership. And that's what husbands are supposed to do in this particular section. So this argument about, I'm in charge, you need to do what I tell you to do, that is Aristotle's teaching. It's a pagan teaching. It is not Christian teaching. Subordination is not the way of Christ. Subordination is a hierarchy. There is a placement in a lower class rank or position, and that's not what Paul is saying here. That's not what Jesus Christ says here. Subordination is not a way of Christ. Mutual love and commitment is the way of Christ. And so we note that the husband in verse 19 is not instructed to lead or be in charge over his wife. doesn't say do a good job leading her. No, you are to love her sacrificially in Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ sets people free to love one another in freedom and does not wed them to these hierarchical structures or to power or to status. Power, status, hierarchy have been undone by Christ's cross and resurrection. We are free to love in the manner that Jesus Christ loved. And while we talk about this word submit, when we went back to Ephesians and we looked at 5.22, which says, wives, submit to your husbands. If you go back one verse to 5.21, it says, <clears throat> all of you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Not husbands and wives, but everybody in the church. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Clearly, this instruction in 3.18, Colossians 3.18, has nothing to do with status or hierarchy or inferiority, but with a Christ life expressed in the relationship of Christian wives and husbands. <clears throat> and what is this covenantal love in the Bible? It is a covenantal commitment to one's wife or to one's husband to be with her, to be for her, including providing for her, and to pursue Christ-likeness together. That's what Christian love is. All dimensions of the marriage relationship are shaped by Christ-like behavior aimed at fostering Christ-likeness in one another. 
we should be trying to develop the image of Christ in our spouse, whether it's a husband or a wife. That's what Jesus Christ wants us to do. That's what Paul's talking about. This model of marriage, you know, we don't talk about this very much in church, but the Song of Solomon is a great, great book talking about the model of marriage. And in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, the wife says, My beloved is mine, and I am his. He grazes among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. And in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, he says, You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. A beautiful issue, love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice? Better than a Hallmark card, isn't it? I mean, it really is. That's God's word to us about about Christ-like love. And note that the husband calls her his, sis, his sister, his wife, because we are brothers and sisters in Christ, whether we're husband or wife or not. Husbands who love like this, or as in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, make clear, do not make demands, do not overpower, do not violate the integrity of a wife. Instead, the husband who loves like this encourages, empowers, and frees. So when we look at 319... Less emphasis should be given to discussion about power and male dominance, leadership, and authority, and more emphasis given to love so that the relationship will be more spirit-driven. This section does not advocate sharing power. It advocates sharing life in love with one another as a new kind of power. There is no striving for equality in power, but rather there is an equality based on loving and serving one another. There are different roles, but they are equal partners filling those different roles. And Paul speaks, talks about the husband's disposition toward his wife and says that love does not despise. Okay, do not be harsh with them. Do not despise them. Love does not despise because it honors and empowers the other at one's own expense. A husband who loves his wife like this will not be harsh with her. In Paul's day, the Roman or Greek tradition was a philandering husband whose friends were males and his sexual companions were slaves and prostitutes, and such a relationship would break down into despising the wife. The wife had no function. Paul's words to the Greek and Roman husbands easily translate to the present day. In fact, the word harsh is translated embittered and comes from the Greek word which means stop being bitter, and do not have the habit of being bitter. It's a taste thing, okay? The only other use in the New Testament is in Revelation when the scroll is bitter when, when he eats it. And it refers to something that's bitter in taste. John MacArthur says that Paul tells their husbands not to call their wives honey and then act like vinegar. You know? Which is so true. They must not display harshness, bad temper, or resentment toward their wives. They are not to irritate their wives or exasperate them. Well, that's a hard thing, you know. And by the way, it, it, I've, I've made a long-term career of that, actually, you know, exasperating my wife. But, um, but the, the, the instructions apply on bo- to both sides because it is a covenantal relationship where you're trying to build each other up. Husbands should provide leadership in the home. 
Paul also tells at 1 Corinthians 7, 33 and 34, that there must be a mutual concern in marriage. The husband must find how he may please his wife. And the wife is to pursue how she may please her husband. And so when we cherry-pick scriptures, wives, submit to your husbands, but we don't look at the overall pattern of marriage that God started in Genesis and that Paul continues to talk about, we lose, we lose this richness of what the marriage relationship is supposed to be about. And so although there is authority and submission by God's design, there is also spiritual equality and a mutual longing for each partner to please the other. And I pray that your marriages are like that, and if they're not, then it's time to get on your knees and ask God why that is and what you can do. So wives and duties have duties and obligations, but they're of love. They're of love to each other. Well, today is Communion Sunday. So I'm going to stop here and not move. I did two, two verses today, not bad. Before moving into relationships between parents and children and masters and slaves, and I suspect that I may also receive um, comments throughout the week or, or questions about this topic, and I will joyfully address them next week if, if I need to do so. But before communion, if you are here today and have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, have not become a new creation like we've been talking about, and if what I've been speaking about sounds really weird but really attractive and different. Today is the day to claim your status as a new creation and a son of the Father who is in heaven. Confess your sins to God. Repent of the sins. Place your faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ, in his death on the cross for your sins, in his resurrection to sit at the right hand of the Father and believe in your heart that Jesus died for your sins. Confess with your mouth that he is Lord and you will be saved. You will enter into the joy of relationships that exist in the way that God originally intended them, not the way they've been perverted by this fallen world. But in the meantime, for the rest of you, prayerfully consider your marriages. And as Paul directs in 3.17, consider whether you are doing, in, in whatever you are doing, in word or deed, if it is being done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to the Father through him. Do not call your spouse honey and act like vinegar. Let's pray.